You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Darmendra Kanani. I am Director of Strategy and the moderator for your session this morning. Um, terror and the city. Um, we have a really interesting panel of people um, that will contribute to this discussion, but just a few words by way of introduction. This is the first in a series of discussions we uh, at Friends of Europe want to initiate around resilience. Resilience of communities, resilience of institutions, resilience in policy making and the impact of policy making. That's the question that we're asking ourselves. That actually, given all that we've experienced um, in the many decades that we have uh, in relation to this particular issue, but also in relation to our general, um, I suppose, maturity and I hope self-awareness around issues around security and defence. In the 21st century, given what we know and our experiences, how do we tip the balance more towards becoming more resilient? And that requires us to have learned from the past, use data more effectively, be more creative about foresight, but actually not simply respond and react to situations, but to think ahead and actually learn from our experiences more readily? And how do we change mindsets around creating better, more uh, effective uh, resilience within uh, both a government at a local level, but within communities? And that's really the issue we feel is going to be is important, but also I think the driver for more of a sustainable, uh, positive um, solution to the kind of situations we're facing uh, ourselves uh, increasingly. You'll all remember that, that moment that's um, in, in etched in our memories when uh, 9-11 took place and our first sense of what terror in the city uh, internationally meant. Since then, we've seen a kind of different kind of urban terror take, take place where in response, and quite legitimately so, one might say, uh, in response to increased um, sophisticated ways of targeting terrorists, they're using much more, um, uh, how shall I say, uh, means which are not as easy to detect vehicles, uh, being able to just get into a community through other means, in using low-key, low-tech approaches. And when that happens, which is an absolute reaction to the sophistication of um, um, detecting terror, what do we do to protect communities? What do we do to ensure institutions are able to respond effectively and create and rest restore order? But most importantly, how do you create that bounce-back factor for a community or a state? So that's what we want to discuss with you today. We, as many of you may know, we, are, uh, we also have a platform, a debating platform, where we canvass some nearly three million citizens across Europe. And we asked some of the citizens before this debate about this issue. And it was quite interesting that some of the points, which are not, I mean, dramatically different to how you or I would uh, uh, respond, is that so Carolina from, from um, East Europe says, barricades are treating the symptom and not the disease. Rosie uh, from the UK says, terrorists have been deliberately targeting tourists and cultural places in major cities across Europe. Is it possible to keep European cities safe and still preserve the cultural look and feel of historic public places? And Victor 
again from France, says, how can cities defend themselves against attacks made with ready, readily available improvised weapons such as vehicles or kitchen knives? So the same issues that citizens are thinking about and questioning that I'm sure you'll have in your mind in terms of how do you uh, respond to this very modern um, uh, and insidious threat that we, we encounter more increasingly. Um, I want to start, we've got, a, we've got a really interesting panel of speakers. We have um, experience from Manchester, uh, we have the mayor from Pristina, we have the private sector uh, in terms of Nokia, and then we have uh, a think tank that actually is involved in thinking through institutional responses. And I want to turn firstly to Paul. Paul, thank you very much, very much for being here. Your experience has you know, had a, like many cities, uh, a, a global impact in terms of because not only did you have the, the sheer ugliness of what took place, but you also had a star uh, that was able to also, um, shall I say, help in certain ways. Uh, but actually it was the community that was central to this particular. From your perspective, what went wrong or what went right in the context of your experience in terms of lessons to be learned for building resilience? Now that you're here today, in terms of what were you thinking about, that what could you do differently or better? Uh, okay, thank you. I suppose I'm going to make a, a particular point about um, learning and uh, preparation. And although I will focus on the attack and terrorism, our greatest um, capacity to respond, and I'll talk mainly about responding, but preparing to respond as well as, and the debate can go wider about preparing to protect and prevent, is that we have, we start on a basis of a generic response, so that if you have hundreds of plans that are bespoke to every single scenario, we'll try to create that, nobody ever gets that plan out at the time of an emergency. So we have one central plan that we use regularly on, on planned events, such as um, when we know there's going to be bad weather, when we know there are going to be demonstrations, when we know there are going to be strikes, for example. And we use the same plan when we respond to an incident so that we've got the same command and control structures, the same response structures, and we're used to using those. And then supporting that, we have specific plans. So... That's planning, preparation, relationships, so that when we go in a room, actually quite a lot of us in that room, if it's a command and control room, have met each other, or within the room there's a common understanding and trust across all the many agencies, and I'm talking about a very broad range of agencies. We're very inclusive. It isn't just the 999 services and the military. It is local authorities and utilities and the private and public sector come into those planning and preparation and secure meetings. So building on that, then exercising. People who we interviewed, for example, from the ambulance service said, in the last couple of weeks, we planned our mass casualty plan. We exercised it, and it was fresh in my mind exactly how we did this. It's an exercise two weeks ago. And actually, the, casualty, the triage, treatment, and transport of casualties was one of the, a real success. Of all those people who were injured, they were all transported to the different hospitals who were ready to receive them, and only one person out of all the, all the tens and tens to hundreds of people who had to go to hospital, only one had to be moved to a different hospital at a later date. All the others arrived at the hospital that was ready for them with the capability to deal with them. So that had been through regular training, exercising and planning. 
Other, another uh, really useful plan that was tested and proved of the mass fatality plan, again, you know, being prepared to deal with something well beyond your capacity. I'm sure in many cities across the world, the same as in Manchester, our health services are running close to capacity on any one day. So to suddenly have a mass amount of casualties, but also fatalities, you need to be prepared to have mutual aid, and to scale up and to bring in extra resources. And that worked incredibly well. Behind that is the ability to do mutual aid. Uh, so our mortuary plans, the ability to have a pre-prepared regional and national mortuary plan, because you need to get those people with dignity very quickly to a place where they can be uh, taken, uh, and, and identified. Casualty identification is really critical and it's really important to do that well and have a prepared plan for disaster victim identification because there's the challenge between getting that identification exactly right and an exacerbating issue in this instance. You know, a lot of young people who on a very first look may look similar to and then other people missing in hospital and you don't know exactly who's missing and who unfortunately is actually uh, not going to make it that day. The families want to know within minutes. It is impossible to do that, but having processes in place to as quickly and as properly as possible to get the identification absolutely right to forensic detail. So we brought in extra capabilities, and we also had we have a mutual aid capability with the military who brought in uh, doctors and experts who can deal with, who are used to battleground casualty treatment and also rapid identification to support the civil authorities. And we used that learning recently, and that's one of my points about generic. The mortuary plans we used again this winter when we've had peak pressures this winter. We had high casualty, we had high amounts of influenza in Great Britain, three types of influenza and we had the winter pressures over the bank holiday periods, and we used our learning, actually, to this winter since the event that we're talking about. Another plan that was really useful was the rest and rehabilitation centres. So we have people who are displaced, and we used um, a pre-planned place to take those families who, could be, who were missing their young ones, etc., I'll move on quickly. A few other parts with the civil, civic leadership. It is incredi incredibly important to have political and civic leadership to look to make sure that this, our city said we're going to carry on. The next day we had a vigil. Within that week and within the next 10 days, we had a Manchester run. We didn't shut down. We carried on, but we reacted quickly. And built behind that is community cohesion, so that the community already trust politicians, the police service, the local authority, and you have that conversation so that when you're in a time of conflict, you're able to uh, really be well prepared. So just to say a last point about the biggest challenge, perhaps, that um, we struggled with to an extent, and, we, and is always a challenge in a major incident, is communication. You test an exercise, you try to put stress into an exercise, there is no stress like the real incident. So being, not having single points of failure in your communication and really thinking about them and making sure they aren't there when the situation comes to pass. Communicating between all the emergency services, through to the military, through to the government who want to know very quickly what is going on, but then 
also about false incidents, social media. So on the night, there were reports of several other incidents in Greater Manchester, which made us think that we had a multiple planned, multiple site attack, which turned out not to be true, but we needed to deploy resources to several sites across the city, and then the ability to communicate to the public. Uh, very, it's on the television, it's on Sky, it's on the BBC. Everyone knows what's happening, and they chase you very quickly. And so setting up a casualty bureau for people to ring up and say, I can't find my loved one. One interesting part is we assumed hundreds of people would be lost from their parents because young people went to a concert mm. and then are going to come out at half ten at night looking for the parents, but they've been dispersed through different exits. Actually, nearly everybody found their parents or their loved ones or their adults because everyone has a mobile phone. So actually it came down to the ones who couldn't relocate were unfortunately deceased or had been taken to hospital. So actually we didn't need to house 2,000 people. You know, we only had to look after in the end a smaller amount of families. So I'll stop there because... I'm no, realizing. thank you, thank we'll, we'll you. I mean, I recall how... Um, can you hear me? Is it working? Um, how remarkable it was in the community reaction it, because it was palpable because you had children it, it was just like en masse and you, you thought to yourself how did that municipality get its act together but also the community coming together within days and doing and Manchester has always had a history of having a good community grassroots um, approach uh, and history of that but it was remarkable how people built to pull together I've got two minor points you could be kind of brief in your response what level of learning have you had or did you have beforehand from places like Paris or elsewhere in terms of their experience? What level of exchange has there been around on that? And my second question, and so very briefly again, is that you say what you have, but in terms of it changes what you do infrastructure-wise, doesn't it? I mean, what you've described, the, t the type of relationships between different sectors, the fact that you have the kind of the national government, you have the army, you have everything's kind of, is a much more integrated infrastructure that you have to create. There's money associated with that. So what's the money question there for you guys locally in terms of budget, forward budgeting? Has this been inc incorporated into your future planning process? Okay, I think the first part really, as you said, the community cohesion and uh, involvement in the community was uh, tremendous. And um, the fact that, for example, that after the event, we had, there was still considerations, the national risk level went up to the highest it could be, it was critical because there was a belief that there, yeah. were, there were potential further terrorist attacks. And we, and we couldn't communicate with the public, obviously, on, because what was ongoing were immediate uh, searches and arrests across the city region and that causes massive disruption when the city is on a heightened city region is on a heightened level of security and all of a sudden a load of police swoop into an area yeah. put through a door and do some arrests there is a massive amount of tension but immediately we'd put our community cohesion into into place so the people that that community are used to working with whether it's uh, civic or local leadership third sector faith police, local authorities, immediately to work with that um, community was really important. Um, and that civic leadership about saying, let's have a memorial, let's look after that memorial is incredibly important. <clears throat> In terms of the financial side, yes, we're now learning. We were immediately already learn learning and in conversation with London, who had one attack shortly before, one mm -hmm. attack shortly after. Mm -hmm. But your other point about Barcelona, uh, Paris, etc., mm -hmm. yes... It, 
Greater Manchester are in the programme, several international programmes. One of them is the uh, 100 Resilient Cities Rockefeller, Found Rockefeller Foundation. Sure. And through that, we have very close relationships with those cities and we're already in discussions and we share that learning and we come sure. together. Well, just, just press you on the budget thing. Is the budget being developed differently as a result of what you've come across? Is it being built to accommodate what you've just described? So particularly, or is it a battle? Just if you can yeah. be honest about it. I mean, that. it is a battle, yeah. but we, because we've got a, a new devolution model in Greater Manchester, okay. a lot of money is devolved. The power to devolve the money, it's not new money, there's no extra money, Indeed. but the power to use it differently, a lot of that sits within the local mayor and civic leadership's control. But what we do need to do is realise that we have had austerity and resources are cut back. So you so can't really say at this challenge. stage, can you? No, but we need to Diplomatic responses is a challenge, but that means it's not happening, potentially. But I won't push you on that. Let me go to a mayor. Um, really pleased to have you here, Shvend. Um, obviously, you've got the local experience, but also because you're a part of a network, you'll know. And my, my, my question to you is about risk reduction really, what kind of urban strategies are being put in place from your experience to reduce the risk of what we've experienced in many cities? And if, if terrorism um, um, it, it, and, you know, radicalisation are cities' main urban challenge in the 21st century, how do you balance prevention as well as reaction to this? Complicated question, I know. But no, in it's, five it's not that complicated, actually. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for the for the question. Um, we just had last week. Uh, I'm the mayor of Pristina. Pristina is the capital of uh, Kosovo. About half a million people. Uh, we've been on the news a couple of years ago because of, uh, as you pointed out in our biographies, of uh, radicalization of uh, specific groups and them taking part in the Syria war, which is not only from Kosovo but from the Balkans regions in in general. But a question also for Belgium and Brussels and certain neighborhoods. Uh, but we just had the 10th year, 10th anniversary of our independence, and we had Rita Ora in a concert in the main square, uh, which for a mayor is good, but also a nightmare uh, scenario, because 100,000 people showed up in the main square, and as mayor, you're saying this is very good because it's an event that is now broadcasted around the world, good for tourism. We just have Rita is from Pristina, so she, she's now you know, British, but it brought big crowds to the city. But thinking about changing terrorist attacks, as mayor, you're thinking it takes one truck. It doesn't require a bomb anymore. It doesn't require, you know... A military being present everywhere and checking for suspicious faces, vests and who knows what, cameras everywhere. It takes one truck, which is very easy to get. You don't need specific training for it because anyone can be a driver. It just takes one crazy person to drive into the crowd and cause mass casualties. So this is the biggest problem that we're facing as cities uh, in the past few years, which is the changing of terror attacks from what we have known as hard targets, government institutions, important economic buildings, to really soft targets, crowds in open spaces uh, that are meant, and if you hear most of these terror attacks, if they've left something behind, it is to cause fear and paranoia in the general population. Paul has talked about the emergency response which is you can train all you want, but when you come to it, 
it is a really difficult, as, as he said, very well pointing it out, that nobody draws the plan when you're in the middle of an attack and say, wait a second, did we do the procedure? And, and we saw it with the latest Florida shooting that what they said is they, they've gone through all the trainings. For the past year, they've gone through all the trainings in the school. They've trained the teachers. They've done the, the, the discussions with the students. And yet, still, there was a huge casualty. So now, you know, we're, we're hearing about the responses uh, the U.S. president saying that we need teachers with guns. Uh, it, because if teachers had a gun, they would have prevented this attack. So we're really discussing the policy responses uh, to what is... To, uh, you know, it is a policy response. Whether it's good or bad, it's, a, it's another issue. So emergency response is one thing. Prevention is what we're discussing here. And in prevention, we are dealing with two types. One that we are doing quite a lot, which is the social, understanding how certain groups get radicalized. So when you're a mayor, you're saying, okay, Pristina has had these groups radicalized. What's the reason? Why are certain neighborhoods more vulnerable to radicalization than the others? Is it the economic situation? Is it, I don't know, the situation of the different religious institutions? Is it the level of crime in that area? Uh, so this is what we do a lot. But what's happening in the last few years, and this is what we need to discuss, is actually using urban design for prevention. So not just the social side of it, because we do a lot of these issues, repatriation when uh, fighters come back from, from Syria, trying to integrate them in society, understanding better why they've gone in the first place. But now we're moving to the urban design. And the main thing in this issue is in urban design is to actually find a balance between uh, acceptability of the population of certain measures, mm -hmm. you know, and really the safety measures that you're taking. Because obviously today you have very advanced uh, systems of cameras, safe cities, smart cities. Now we have developed uh, things that, you, you know, if you want to do a specific area, you have a camera. You know, Israel is leading in this uh, area that if four people gather for more than two minutes in a specific area that you've identified in the camera, it is a red alert, and immediately the police goes and checks what these people are doing, why are they gathered, why are they sitting around in, in you know, groups of four or five. Uh, so uh, you have these measures. But the problem is, do you want to create really fear and paranoia? Because that was the goal in the first place of the terror attacks. A uh, few years back, we've had a beer festival in Pristina, uh, in the main square, about 25,000 people in one night. Two young guys start a fight. Uh, one of them pulls a gas gun, shoots. Everybody thinks it's a terror attack. The way they run is that we've had around 40 people injured from the stampede. I've had to cancel the event for the next three nights was criticized heavily for causing paranoia uh, in the public. They said you should have gone on. But my fear was that we didn't have the necessary response in place, not just for attacks, but also for pranks. People who just want to, you know, as you say, in, when you have one attack, then people think that they're going to four attacks in line. And every night uh, there is this fear. So we're going much more into these designs, which are, Restricting access to pedestrian areas with physical barriers, but not the physical barriers that look like the cement 
ones which are the military barriers that people think why this has been going on. But every city now is thinking of bullets, uh, the moving uh, obstacles that we put in, in areas. But now we're growing more and more into the design aspect of it. So we're hiring more and more architects to make them seem flawless, unnoticeable to the general public. But you know that they are going to restrict access to these areas where you are the most vulnerable at. Uh, second is we're trying to see if you can reduce speed with designs in areas that are close, because obviously the, the attacks in, in Nice, in, in, all, in, in all of these cities with trucks, have shown to us that these are now the most vulnerable areas to deal with. So really, the biggest challenge for me as mayor, and I think mayors worldwide, Pristina might not be a huge target for the kinds of attacks that we've had in the big cities, uh, but it's the, the challenge is to find a balance between acceptability of the public and the safety, not causing paranoia, but at the same time doing beautiful urban design in order to restrict these areas so that we are not as vulnerable from these attacks as we sure. And and the only thing that concerns me about what I've heard so far is that we seem to be behind the terrorists rather than ahead of them. And what I mean by that is that vehicles were, one could imagine, a natural reaction to the fact that actually it's low-tech, not as sophisticated, not as predictable, and therefore too the kind of infrastructure around. And therefore, people will absolutely move into that space. Designing urban spaces to respond to vehicles cannot be the answer in its own right. It's about staying, thinking ahead about what is the other kinds of, what are the other kinds of responses that terrorists are going to take? Because they will be smart and know exactly what to do in the next... Um, <laughs> I hate saying this, but in the next kind of tranche of terrorist attacks, uh, people get smarter. So not reacting simply to vehicles, I think, is important. But perhaps our audience will have a reaction to that too. But it's about trying to stay one, head of the, one, head of, uh, one step ahead of the terrorists in terms of their thinking. And I think that we mustn't just react to um, a vehicle uh, as being the thing. But I'm interested in what you said about resilience. Well, I see it as resilience. How do you, how do you prevent radicalisation? How do you prevent people feeling so removed from society that they are prepared to engage in um, things which are uh, uh, which will involve killing people or creating uh, terror and havoc and I'm, I'm minded by what Bart Summers who's a mayor in, in, in Mechelen so one of the most diverse areas in Belgium um, you know one out of every two that's born in that in that area is Moroccan yet none of the experiences that we've had in anywhere in any other part of Europe given the diversity you have but there's very much an inclusive approach and what he said was actually, when we try and think about this, this issue, we try not to have a different response to poor areas versus rich areas. And when we actually try and do things in poor areas, we don't reinforce poverty by using low-tech material and making it look ugly. We try and make, make sure that everybody actually matters in my city and in my area. And that's something very simple, but actually in terms of a community has a huge powerful resonance for how people feel uh, and feel a sense of connection, but something also to think about. Very briefly, just I a, want to move on. Go a, a, just a few comments. <clears throat> uh, in a way, it's, it's like a race. Even if you stay ahead, then they are thinking about how to stay ahead of you. So if now we've responded to vehicle attacks, obviously, you know, what is the next step? Knife attacks in crowds, which you cannot stop with a physical 
barriers. It's not an explosive, it's just a knife, and it takes about 10 minutes to stab around 10 people uh, in a big crowd like they've done uh, in, in many places. So it's, you try to stay ahead, but then also you have no, to respond. No, I agree, to, but I think we also, when, we, when we think about hybrid threats, I mean, the, the ease with which people will use cyber attack, hacking, yep. in ways that will actually destroy a city within, within 24 hours Absolutely. is phenomenal. Yes. That potential is here and now. And, and just uh, the last comment is about uh, radicalization. What we've seen, and I think the biggest problem was that in response to what we've seen, the attacks in the name of Islam, Mm -hmm. The society has moved to an anti-Islam uh, discourse, which has caused just further radicalization. Sure. We have actually seen that working with the imams, working uh, with the mosques that are considered to be more moderate, you know, we can call it that way, is a much better response in trying to prevent radicalization than what the government does, because they have much more contact uh, much more discussions with them. Indeed. So we're trying to work with them in order to prevent this further. Good, good. Yeah, and I'm sure there'll be issues around that and questions we can d d discuss in the very short time that we have. I'm going to move to Emmanuel, the private sector. Um, and it goes to my point just now about cyber attacks and hacking, yes. but yeah. much more than that, because I'm really fascinated by the fact that you as a company um, are thinking quite radically about some of this, but also using your technology mm -hmm. in a quite interesting way. Just say a little bit about how you are helping municipalities sure. and what you think some of the issues, challenges are yes. in building resilience. Yes, okay, thank you. Um, first of all, I wanted to, to give a bit of background of what, what, um, what is Nokia doing, actually. Uh, so it's uh, best known for its mobile, uh, mobile phone, but mm. of course we are uh, also very much... Uh, uh, contributing to the way people communicate as we are building networks, communication networks uh, for, for you, uh, for us to, uh, uh, to, to interact uh, socially and, and also for business purposes. Um, so um, actually we have uh, mainly uh, traditionally a relationship with industry and service providers, um, but we also uh, engage a lot with public sector so we have uh, uh, 55 uh, uh, references in mission-critical networks for public safety, so for uh, really communication network for fast responders, for firefighters. Uh, we have uh, uh, 30 uh, mission-critical references for um, uh, defense networks. Uh, we are also engaging uh, in broadband, uh, public broadband um, um, uh, programs and, and city networks. Um, just to make the cities smarter, safer, and, and more resilient, uh, as you mentioned. Um, so there are uh, quite a lot of, of innovations um, uh, we are working on, uh, also to, uh, to reinforce the, the public, uh, public safety, uh, public safety networks. I uh, just wanted to, to take a few of them to illustrate what, what we're concretely doing. Um, so um, we are investing a lot in analytics, so it's video and, and data analytics. Um, so and and also, which is um, uh, the rapidity or, or the way you can use this information to uh, rapidly react upon anomalies that you spot uh, or about uh, bad situations that you see. Um, so just want to take the example of our um, scene analytics solution. That uh, it's an innovation from uh, from our Bell Labs uh, in, in Antwerp, uh, where we basically um, are using uh, 
just taking an example, for instance, if, if the police or the law enforcement agency is looking for a car, uh, a specific car with certain colors, certain brands, uh, certain number plate, uh, that we can interrogate all the devices that are equipped with, with uh, all the vehicles which are equipped with a certain device to push some video uh, information back to a control center, of course, which is relevant to the scene. You know? So we are uh, doing uh, intelligence analytics on this information that is gathered by those, those cameras in the vehicles. Um, so um, an important thing, of course, is that um, there is a data privacy aspect also attached to that, which I want to, to mention, which is very important. Uh, also to, to Nokia, it's a basic principle for Nokia. So um, we, we, of course, build our solution to take that into account. So um, we, uh, for instance, for, for data privacy purposes, we make sure that the video analytics, for instance, that we could use to spot a vehicle, uh, is done at the premises so that it does not have to travel the full internet before uh, it is analyzed. Uh, this is one measure, and this is thanks to uh, uh, distributed cloud infrastructure. Uh, we can also make all the data anonymous. Uh, we can also mask um, the background of the information which is not relevant to the, to the information that you are looking for. So these are all technology which I believe is also, uh, could be a concern for, for the people uh, in the cities uh, if you start discussing about, about such, such a measure. Another example I wanted to take is, is about drones. So we are, um, uh, we are in the scope of um, Nokia Saving Lives initiative. Uh, we, uh, we actually had a demo um, how a fleet of drones could um, efficiently um, identify people uh, who are uh, in a disaster area. Mm? So these are uh, drones which are equipped with, uh, with intelligence, software intelligence, uh, which are um, capable of, of spotting um, heat, uh, uh, motion, uh, to detect people, uh, of course, easily, and to uh, with the connectivity which is um, uh, in, in, on boarded into those drones, uh, they are capable of uh, bringing that information back to, uh, uh, to um, uh, first responders, people, um, in kind of a mission critical control center. Uh, and also, um, well, what I wanted to uh, also highlight is on cybersecurity, more specifically. So you, you mentioned about that, but uh, it's for sure that one of the biggest fear of, of the cities is that, for instance, a terrorist could take control of all the websites uh, or even uh, energy plants. Um, and there are also uh, important technology which is uh, developed to uh, prevent this, so like uh, malware protection, like denial of service uh, attacks protections. So these are all measures which are uh, available today and which can make the, the network more resilient and, and the cities more, more resilient. How much take-up is there what you've what you described is quite scary. I wonder how GDPR will relate to some of the kind of analytics mm. that you're creating. Yeah. Uh, when does a visual image become data? I don't know. But, um, you know, there is something kind of both scary but also interesting but also um, reassuring that, you, that technology can be put to use in a very intelligent way. Mm -hmm. uh, but what level of market access, if I can call it that, uh -huh. are you having with the municipalities in Europe? Yeah. Well, uh, well basically, we, we work a lot 
already a lot with with, uh, with the NATO Ministry of Defense, okay. Ministry of Interior, so with uh, with police. Uh, uh, so we have already, uh, uh, of course, network through our references, and because we are recognized as as, uh, as a provider of of, of mission critical communication networks, so okay. uh, we we have uh, those discussions, which is of course a very serious topic, and and there is. Um, more and more we see when we discuss with public sector, more and more attention which is brought, of course, to security measures which can be uh, implemented in municipalities to to increase the safety of, of, of the people. No? Because that's the I'm sure as we move ahead, the whole kind of balance between civil liberties... Uh, rights and and surveillance will come much more to the fore it's in it's and as, as of now obviously but as we move of forward. course of course and I think the fact that we communicate and the mayors communicate a lot with uh, with the people uh, okay. uh, can can help in in okay uh, understanding better what uh, the technology can bring but also that we are taking data privacy data protection very seriously and okay. and and this is perfectly possible with the technology that we have today. Okay, Manuel, thank you very much. Right. I'm going to turn, because I want to open it up, I'm going to turn very briefly now to Camina. Last but not least, Centre for European Reform. You have uh, a specialism in kind of police cooperation and judicial cooperation. One of the things we do know is that when these kind of situations happen, we hear about the failure of information sharing between police uh, as well as agencies uh, across the board. And, you know, it's a, it's, I'm sure it's a matter for mayors and others as well in terms of the ease with which information is shared and how and the timing of it is critical for situations, but also creating a protocol and an actual system, which is not just in Manchester but across Europe, that's able to deal with this. What's your, what's your take on actually the resilience of that or even the, the efficacy of it at the moment? Yeah, sorry, I'm just going to start here, my timer, because I'm Spanish, so I have a tendency to overspeak. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'll keep you to time, don't worry. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I have the feeling that here in Brussels, we've got a very short memory. Uh, before there was Brexit, uh, we were all... Oh, can you take the mic, please? Ah, sorry, yes. It's important, that otherwise people won't hear you. I was saying that I have the feeling that in Brussels we have a very short memory. Before there was Brexit, we were all writing uh, frantically about terrorist attacks all over Europe and how to improve intelligence sharing and these sort of things. Then Brexit happened, David Cameron got us all in this mess, and I work for a British think tank. So everything that I've done for the past two years is thinking how to get us out of this mess to make Brexit a success, so to speak. Um, but indeed, the main questions that are posed at this moment in Europe are those related to how can the European Union help member states uh, fight uh, this new trend of terrorist attacks. And if you remember, back in, uh, at the time when the Paris and Brussels and Berlin and I kind of lost count of the amount of cities we're talking about here, uh, took place, we were accusing the European Union of all sorts of things. The European Union was unable to uh, support member states in sharing intelligence. The European Union was uh, responsible for getting in so many refugees that we had all these terrorists coming in. The European Union was unable to stop French citizens from going to Syria, right? Some of these things were true. We had deficiencies uh, in the Schengen border codes. We had a deficient functioning of the Schengen information system, which is the database that is more relevant here. Uh, the so-called Article 36 alerts, which are alerts on suspicious people, not on people who have been convicted, uh, were not working properly. 
And we also have uh, some holes, so to speak, in our approach to migration and asylum outside of Europe. So the, the infamous hotspots were not functioning properly. However, meanwhile, while Brexit was happening, the European Union has gotten his house in order, and we now have amended the Schengen border codes. We now have a better approach to, um, to asylum and migration and how to identify people. Uh, we also have the PNR direct directives, the Passenger Name Records Directive, which has helped enormously. And uh, we have also improved the way the Schengen information system works. Um, but once again, that is not up to the European Union to do because this alerts the European Union can ask member states as much as they want to input this kind of information. But if member states are reluctant to do it because they do not trust their counterparts, then we are going to be in exactly the same situation as we were when Salah Abdeslam and his friends kind of went back and forth, Paris, Brussels, uh, being undetected. So I think that in this specific area, um, we can criticize the European Union as much as we want, but there is a case for not for more Europe, but for better Europe, for a Europe that actually supports member states in the things that they need to be supported and then leaves member states and local communities to work on things like radicalization, urban planning. I remember uh, in my previous life I, I worked uh, with the Commission on a proposal to uh, make uh, multimodal transport hubs uh, resilient uh, against terrorist attacks. And these sort of things are okay. The European Union can look at ways on how can we fund these kind of things. But we cannot impose from a high up level uh, measures that need to be taken at the bottom, as, as uh, my colleagues were saying, as Spen was saying as well. The terrorist threat is evolving so much that it is very challenging for the European Union to understand what the next steps are. One of them is, I don't know if uh, you've had the joy of reading the latest Europol uh, TESAT report on terrorist threats, and it's, in, it's an amazing read, I, I'm, I'm telling you. And uh, they, um, they explain there that most of the attacks that have happened in Europe over the past year have not been related to ISIS have not been related to the Islamic State. They have been related to anarchists, right-wing, and left-wing terrorists. So we have this image in Europe that everything is related to jihadism and all these sort of things. However, we have a mounting problem coming from elsewhere, and we are not being aware of the responses. And the second challenge that I wanted to mention as well, related to what Emmanuel was talking about, is how to work with private sector as well. How to do a public-private partnership that helps us, you know, taking down content, um, uh, searching the darknet and all these sort of things, while uh, protecting citizens' rights, but also what do we do with encryption. I think that those are the two points where the European Union can work at the moment, and we should stop criticizing the European Union for doing things that other people should be doing as well. Sure, but that, yeah, I agree with you, but the issue is that how do you improve uh, information sharing amongst police officers at a, just a basic level? How do you get that kind of facility where, you know, you know the information there, and it's a matter of trust, but also political leadership? Because actually, if political leaders wanted it, it would happen. We know that. Uh, and whether it could happen, it doesn't have to happen across Europe, but we know that if leaders wanted it um, in kind of regional parts, uh, in sub-regions of Europe, that could absolutely happen. We're just not witnessing it at all. And that seems to be a key issue. I'm not sure whether the private sector can help in that, but it seems, it's, it seems to be a question of politics political leadership but um, I'll bring the audience in uh, if I may um, 
So, over to you. Um, we don't have a great amount of time, but I'm que- really keen to get your reaction to what you've heard. There's a lady, my, uh, those of you who have witnessed me before, no lectures or speeches, please. A direct question, um, and uh, say who it is too. Good morning, Good morning. I'm Fuen Santa Martinez from ASEA, the European <coughs> sorry, Automobile Manufacturers Association. So we are uh, manufacturing uh, cars, buses, and uh, trucks. Yes. My question is um, uh, how or what is the role of uh, transport uh, stakeholders in, um, in, in, in risk avoidance uh, in general and in particular, is there a role for the automobile industry? Thank you very much. Do you, what do you think? Because given what, you're, what you represent, do you think there's a role I, for you? I don't know. That's, really? That's Is why that I'm posing you, the question. No, absolutely. But as, as a, as a, I'm, I'm being just, you know, provocative, but I'm interested in your view. Because internally, you must be having this conversation about the role that you play. Is that conversation happening? It is happening, and there are a lot of question marks. So. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> That's I, why I'm here I won't today. push you. Thank I won't push you. Okay. Can I have some views from reaction? Come in on this? I just wanted to refer to, to the, the scene analytics solution I was explaining before. So for it's very important, for instance, we are also involved with uh, car manufacturers, uh, vehicle manufacturers to onboard those devices, which can also help to gather information uh, on the ground. And, and this is really typically the role that that industry can have. So, uh, of course, we take this data privacy into account, obviously, but it's very important that um, the industry of, of transport can help also to uh, feed the, the scene analytics with video that can be relevant to uh, a possible anomaly or a possible attack. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's the role they could have. Sven, you're, you're shaking your head. Uh-huh. Yeah. Gone. You're a mayor. I mean, you, this is kind of a key issue. This is part of infrastructure, isn't it? Uh, but it's also it's, partnership with the It's a very sector. difficult question, right. but also a very difficult thing to do uh, in terms of privacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, as I said, there are countries that are more towards, they go more towards security as a priority and don't have privacy issues. But in most of the Western European countries, privacy precedes Trump's security in so many ways, because mm-hmm. as I said, you have countries like they've had more uh, terror attacks and they, you know, they, they live in this type of fear. So it's not a problem to have cameras on cars and then share this widely with the police and everybody else. But in these countries, it's very difficult. It's like, you know, uh, I think as we move to more, more smart cars uh, and we have uh, cars that can detect suspicious movement in itself as well, but I don't think we're there yet. So to me, that question is what can, like, what can knife producers do uh, in knife attacks? Uh, yes, you can have safety measures, but at the end of the day, it's not just the tool. It's also uh, more of who does, who uses it. Sure, but with the growth of electric cars and growth yes. of kind of infrastructure around that, I think you do have a role yes, yes, in terms of the analytic sharing, but also how do you create vehicles that are new age in the way but actually resilient to this kind of issue now that requires problem solving really thinking through what the new phase of attacks will be but that requires foresight analysis and actually working through the problem in partnership between i think mayors 
um, uh, communities than others, buyers, purchasers, but actually having much more of an analysis about how do you actually craft something that's going to be more meaningful in response. But I'm not here as an expert. We have quite a few questions. Okay. So we have, no, no, I'll come to you. So have one of our European young leaders in the audience. So I'll take you first and then I'll take yourself, madam. Good morning, Eduardo Camillo, Razon Intelligence. I have quite a few questions, but I will try to be brief. The first one, we discussed about measures how to protect cities from caroming, but what about protecting from weaponized drones, considering that on the net there are already tutorials on how to uh, put a bomb, even a small one, a small device, on a, on a drone? Exactly, that's my, my point about the new age. Oh, exactly. Absolutely. Second point is technology can do nowadays much, much more than it's currently doing, but it's restrained by laws, by privacy issues and so on. How could we find a better balance to allow artificial intelligence, face recognition cameras okay. and so on to do more for at least the intelligence and prevent instead of react to an event? Thank you. Thank you. I will come back. And please uh, be thinking about these. Um, and there's a lady there, just there. Yes, hello. I'm Karen Hansons from the European External Action Service. I already uh, was in a lot of debate on terrorism and I want to always make a remark and also a question for you all. We're always talking about police and I hear the example of Europol. What about justice? Because what are you doing with radicalization, with police? And you put a lot of effort in police, but then you come to the next step to justice. I know you have Eurojust, but I never hear someone speaking neither in debates on Eurojust, on cooperation, of lawyers and judges because that's the final step and there we never speak about so I want to have your view also from the mayor also from the private company and also from you what about justice because that I'm always missing mm. and absolutely I suppose if you've spoken to police officers they talk about and obviously you're referring to your experience that they'll say we'll have the evidence it gets stuck at another level and it creates kind of a cynicism in the system because it feels as if the judiciary, the judiciary in this regard, seems to be omitted from this discussion. So I'm glad you brought it up. Um, very briefly, what's, what's your reaction to the issue about the judiciary in this, in this context or even either of you, if you want to take a take on this in particular? <clears throat> Uh, again, from a European Union point of view, I agree with you. The next steps, uh, the next steps after talking about Europol and police cooperation, should be talking about Eurojust and judicial cooperation, which also has improved a lot in recent years. One of the main tools uh, to fight terrorism, as anybody involved in the areas yourself would know, is the European arrest warrants, which is uh, working quite well, and uh, it is very, it's being uh, like very, very much used for these sort of issues as well. And then um, there is uh, this new initiative as well, the European Investigation Order, which is going to make it easier as well to get evidence. Then we dive into the other question, which is how to uh, obtain e-evidence, which is a question that possibly Emmanuel might know a little bit more, because uh, that is much more complicated that, than obtaining actual physical evidence. But I think that um, in that respect, we are having a good cooperation across Europe. And then there is another problem, which is harmonizing laws and procedures across Europe. I just read yesterday that my own country, Spain, is trialing mm -hmm. an, an incredibly amount of people for terrorism, mm -hmm. just because the offenses that we have are so high in comparison with other countries, that maybe is something that we need to revisit in, in, the, in, in the following years as well. It feels that we need to have another debate on it, though, I think, to really get to the heart of it. And we, we actually need some police people in the audience or in the panel to really kind of be able to share their experiences because it would be good to have... Are there any police people in the audience? Ah, two of you. Ah, great, gentlemen there. So I'm, going to ignore, I'm not going to ignore some of you, but I'm quite interested in the police perspective in this respect. Yeah, go on. Thanks. I'm, 
I'm Stefano Spinacci, and, and I work as uh, staff in the European Parliament, but I'm speaking uh, on my own. Um, I really liked uh, uh, what Paul said about team and community. I think uh, there's two main points in, uh, in this subject. And uh, I have a few, few points. I'm sorry. You have to be very brief about yeah, yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm going to read. Um, what do you think about the, the possibility of uh, spreading more and more um, the creation of voluntary corp in, uh, within uh, a city? And uh, what about uh, also including the media as collaborators, so not only as a communicator, but someone who is involved, for example, in this testing uh, and uh, experiencing some, uh, some prevention? Um, training to citizens. I'm, I'm uh, thinking, for example, to Japan, who uh, regularly train about earthquake. Citizens are regularly trained. What about uh, okay. adopting? Okay, I'm going to have to go because okay, yeah, of time. Yes. But I, was, I will come back to you, but I was hoping you were going to be a copper, but you're not a copper. Do we have a police person in the audience? Can I just be, uh, be honest if you are? If not, okay, great, because I thought I was getting a police response. Uh, we'll come back, come back to that. But in terms of this, the citizen training aspect, what level of conversation is happening? And I want you to be really brief about the resources for that, but also this impact in terms of you know, citizen calls and training uh, in responding to some of these situations? Uh, yeah, I think there are a couple of good points in there that uh, you can't make, it's the wrong time to make relationships with the communities after a disaster. You have to have made those relationships mm. before. And, and that leads into a lot of areas. And what, one point I just move on, but is relevant, is not to concentrate on each specific risk. I think the audience are pointing to that. But if you're gonna design a solution that's to prevent a terrorist attacking with a drone or whether it's with a vehicle. Actually think about what is the risk and the impact. It doesn't matter where the risk comes from. It could be a criminal, it could be an accident. So people may use drones for lots of reasons, drop, you know, drugs, moving, uh, other issues. So you need to think about what are all the things that can happen and then think about that more broadly. And your other point earlier about looking at intelligence and what is likely to happen. Again, you know, terrorists could move on to attacking water supplies, fuel mm -hmm. supplies, uh, food supplies, but also those things are critical for other reasons. So look at all the risks and think how you solve them, not just because a terrorist might use that as a risk, mm. uh, and, and work together, again, with other agents. So it was just one specific motor industry. You know, yes, involve other industries. Involve the community early on, uh, and, and talk to people but about a multiple risk. So why do people go to hire firms to do other things, to cross borders, to c commit other criminal acts, not just terrorist acts, and it's possible actually to okay. start to work to solve those things? Weapon-loaded drones. Manuel, what's your techie response to that in terms of how do you kind of deal with that particular scenario? Because, I mean, it's very real, um, and which I think we're... You know, we're just waiting for that to happen, unfortunately. But how do yeah. you, in terms of your technology and your capacity? Well, actually, we, we mainly use drrones for the good side of, of the usage of drones, of, of course. course. So there is always the bad a better bad, bad side mm -hmm. of, uh, of the coin. Unfortunately, it's like social media. Uh, we also use it to feed our analytics, but for good 
purposes as well to 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 spot an anomaly. So uh, for drones, we 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 use them basically, like I explained, to to spot uh, uh, people who are in a disaster recovery to to save them faster. Uh, we can also use them to drop uh, kids ads uh, to in in areas where it's difficult to to access. So. so um, yeah, that's uh, that's how we we take the technology to to really use it for for good uh, no, purpose, know, of course. But the question that uh, might be in mind of the audience is how do we try and kind of prevent it or understand it and be able to respond to it more effectively um, uh, as we move forward? Because that's going to be a key issue. Um, yeah. Do you want to take the mic? Sorry. Say who you are. Exactly. Sorry. I'm Mr. Welter. I'm founder and president of Coalition for Defense Europe, which is an NGO fighting for a strong and safe Europe with focus on a strong defense, which we tend to forget, especially the politicians in Western Europe who turn their back to what's happening in Eastern Europe. Okay. And if we I stand up to yeah. make that, uh, to make awareness among the people. Sure, but your question Now, my short, very short yeah. question and short answer, what the gentleman here asked, and I heard from behind. There is a terrorist, and he is having an attack with drones over Paris. How do we get rid of those drones while attacking Paris with chemical weapons? That's a dramatic question, uh, and I'm not sure any of our panelists uh, would have the capacity to give you a, a, a cogent response, but it's a, you make the point. But do you want to well, say something, Spen? Yes, but just for a few questions that were asked. Sure. There are ways to protect if countries want mm. with the air control. Now, in most of our cities, you have to get a permit to fly a drone, otherwise it will be shot down. Uh, and it's very easy to do that. I think governments have uh, better technology than terrorists do in terms of protecting from drone attacks if that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. It just takes political willingness to do, and I think most of the cities actually have these things in place now already, not just for this, but for privacy as well. You cannot fly a drone anymore just, you know, for taking uh, okay. pictures. Uh, the role of media, very important. Uh, social media as well. Uh, what is happening now is most of the people gather information from online media. So we've switched from radio and TV to this type of media. And when you look at the financial models of most of the media, it's clicks that they get. So their role in terms of policy is very important to be discussed. Do they increase paranoia? Do, are they actually ha helping with the situation? What they do in this breaking news, this attack, this many people died, uh, it causes bigger panic than it does. Is there a way to actually use the media? Uh, to help cities and governments in better response to uh, tragic events. You know, Facebook added this uh, mark safe, uh, which actually helped quite a lot, but is that enough? Mm. What are we supposed to do? Again, a balance between free media and what they want to do, and the government actually using the channels that people uh, use most. And is there a technological way for, for private? I think there is. Uh, it's just, again, it's this debate ongoing between privacy. I just saw a presentation from a company, a new company, startup, that uh, we're probably going to use for traffic. It records traffic violations in the city, including illegal parking, using the phone, but it only gives blurred images except for the license plate. Even the company cannot do the resolution, but if there is a court order, there is a key to provide the high resolution footage to the court. This is one way of dealing with it. I really like the solution. But we have to make sure that that video is not used for 
Uh, this is it. Things. Is that central question about civil liberties? Doesn't it? This balancing, balancing the the privacy and the civil liberties of people versus the actual prevention of attacks. But it's a fine balance, and unfortunately, our history is littered with. Um, not an effective leadership on this issue and the fact that you know our rights have been trampled on on many many occasions unfortunately which doesn't inspire trust I'm going to take two two very lady at the back there and I can't take you again I'm afraid you can't have second bite of the cherry I do apologize and the gentleman there so lady there glasses very briefly and I, I, I recognize I'm running out of time or I've gone over time so if you're patient with me another five minutes and then I'll we'll conclude Oh, no, no, it's actually it's the lady at the back there. I do apologise with Mike. I do apologise. <laughs> thank you. Hi, thank you. I am uh, Mirana Pencheva. I work in the European Parliament uh, in the Secretary of the Special Committee on Terrorism. So the question I wanted to ask is primarily on uh, crisis response and the trainings uh, that you have. So as we know, there are countries that have been hit by attacks more often than others. To what extent is there a, any sort of exchange of be best practice also between local and regional and national level, for example, within the UK, but also within the EU, are there any ways in which what you have learned can then be used by other countries to But is, is your committee looking at that? Are you trying to promote that? Well, it's... We still don't have well, a draft report, assume. but we are looking at uh, what, what is working and what isn't working and okay. what would be a good recommendation for the future. Okay, okay, all right. Um, I will take you very briefly, very, very briefly. Yeah, yeah. Just at the mic here, if you can just quickly just... Thank you very much. Uh, Nadja Minzemann, ASD, uh, Aerospace and Security and Defense Industries Association of Europe. But just a quick question to Elizabeth Johnson, I think. Uh, would you say that FP9 now gives us an opportunity to work for finding technological solutions and from the EU level and cooperating within the member states through um, the technological basis to create strategic foresight? Okay. And the gentleman here, last question. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you very much for inviting Uganda to attend this meeting. I work with the Uganda Embassy here in Brussels. But uh, for instance, yeah, we are talking about Europe, Europe, Europe. But uh, I would like to draw your attention also to developing countries like Uganda. The problem we have is border checks where terrorists enter uh, the, the, these developing countries through the borders. Do you have any means of, say, extending such a training to such a countries so that they can strengthen the border checks and training? Mm -hmm. Secondly, from my experience, people who are doing terrorism are very young people between the age of, say, uh, 15 to 25. And when there are such a checks, really, it is better to target those ones and get how they are trained to use these bombs and what. Mm -hmm. yes. Okay, all right, thank you, thank you very much. I'm not sure that the panel will be able to answer your first question about the capacity to actually extend that training outside of Europe, but we can, we can have a view at least shared by, uh, by them. So just very briefly, I'm just going to kind of last final remarks to some questions that you've heard. Two, or two minutes basically in response to some of the questions that I you've... I suppose actually linking the first and, and the last question, uh, in the United Kingdom, yes, we, we have got a national joint emergency services mm. program and a, and a national platform for sharing learning. I'm not saying that is perfect, and it, it clearly isn't. 
Uh, what I would say is the training and exercise, and going back to a previous point, is whatever the impact is, the response then, or I wouldn't say it doesn't matter, but there will be an impact on infrastructure, people, dislocated people, whether it's a chemical attack or a factory that's had a chemical release. So that learning can be done and can be shared. But going to the gentleman's question, linking that, that's why it's important, for example, Greater Manchester engage in international programmes like the United Nations Making Cities Resilient campaign, the 100, cities, 100 Resilient Cities Rockefeller campaign, because we do work with international cities, we exchange, exchange we learn from international cities and share. So there are uh, lots of international forums for sharing of learning and good practice. Of course, it's always a challenge. Maybe I just wanted to come back to your questions about the, the drones, uh, because you, you were asking what, what can technology uh, do um, to prevent drones to, to do a terrorist attack. But they are also thanks to, to cellular networks, some electronic fences that you can create also to, to protect some, some zones of, of flying or, or avoid that, that drones could be able to fly in certain zones. So there are, well, technical answers to, uh, to, to some issues, yeah. What about the point about foresight? What, what, what confidence do you have in creating infrastructure for greater foresight using the technology that you have? So, what, what in terms of you've, you're creating a capability to be yeah. able to do analytics, which is here and now, but yeah. also to help think, think through, but not only responses, but to use data from the past to be able to understand what might be going ahead into the future. What level of foresight analysis yes. are you engaged in? Very, very briefly. Yeah. So we, basically, when we do this with analytics, huh, of mm. course, we we have we need that information to uh, to also create some patterns, mm -hmm. huh, so to to be able to compare all the time the situation that we have today with the past mm. uh, so we can we can learn from that and we can then more easily then react on some actions that we see which are deviating from well some okay. some patterns or uh, that you have detected before defined before okay yeah last comment on the issue of trainings uh, most of the countries and cities have emergency services but the problem is, as Paul said, we're, they're not perfect. And uh, when we talk about the general population training, then we are really lagging behind. So possibly the solution is to use already existing, I don't know, mandatory things to add training. For example, in driver's license, most of our countries have a first aid training that every citizen needs to pass. If you add trainings to that about emergency response in situations like this, or in collective buildings in our city, we have administrators of buildings. We use the already existing structures with the mandatory requirement to discuss this in their buildings. I think these are uh, very important things to do because if you ask people to come to training and read things on voluntary basis, they are not interested unless something really bad happens in your city. Sadly. Last but not least, any particular points you want to make about... The, you know the the kind of the sharing of information again oh, you've made that point already but any other wider points yeah thank you i'm sorry i can't reply to your question because i'm not elizabeth johnson unfortunately so Indeed. that she's probably better place to do that <laughs> but uh, just coming back quickly to your points that uh, we need political leadership to have uh, this information sharing in place i respectfully disagree with that. I do think the European Union has put in place a lot of structures, including Europol, and once again, the Schengen Information System and other, and other sort of things that allow member states to share information. The problem comes from security agencies themselves. Mm. Even in, 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 in 
countries which speak the same language like mine, there are problems uh, with, for example, the police and the Guardia Civil sharing information. Same for Belgium, same for France, etc., sure. etc. So you do need to work on mutual trust, on making security services trust each other, and that is where the European Union can also play a role by boosting all these exchanges, having Europol working together with police and security officers and all these sort of things. But I do, mem I do think politicians would be really happy if intelligence sharing was happening uh, at, a, at a better speed so that they could also sell it when there is a terrorist attack. Absolutely, thank you. Colleagues, I've kept you far too late. I do apologise. Uh, but I think we could have gone on for longer, actually. And it, it just, um, it's, 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 it's a topic that um, will run on and on for obvious reasons. But what, as ever with some of these scenarios, it feels like the people's solutions are more important to get ahead of rather than the process solutions. I hope we've been able to enable you to uh, connect the dots on the issue, think about the kind of changes we need to put in place, um, and think through actually the kind of changes in practice that we need to be thinking about. Um, as I said, this is the first in a series on resilience. Um, we have further information about our next set of events on, on this particular series on our website and we'll keep in touch with you and send you further information. Let's thank our speakers in the usual manner. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. And as ever, if you have any thoughts or ideas about resilience, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Thank you very much.